Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of November 2023, and uh, you may have noticed, uh, once again, it's just me here on the mic today, so it is going to be a solo episode, um, but this is week two of a little something that we're calling uh, No Theme November. Uh, this is not the first No Theme November here at Catching Up on Cinema, but essentially the concept is, uh, well, it speaks for itself. Uh, we don't really have any agenda in terms of trying to form any sort of connective tissue or a through line between all the picks this month. We're just kind of shooting from the hip. Um, although I did actually find kind of uh, a seasonal connection uh, in the film that I'm about to be talking about here. Uh, so uh, I may as well spell that out to you, what I'm going to be talking about here. So uh, this is a this is probably a first uh, for Catching Up on Cinema. I'm going to be talking about a movie today um, that I had no plans uh, to talk about. It's just uh, I was very crunched for time this week, as was Kyle, um, which is why it's just me recording today. Um, but I was so crunched for time that I really all I could do uh, in terms of fishing for a review was fall back on something that I watched recently. I, I didn't watch it initially with the intention of uh, recording a podcast about it, but it was just something I pleasure watched uh, on my own time uh, fairly recently. Uh, so uh, you work with what you got uh, was kind of my mentality this week. So uh, to dispel uh, any sort of mystery here uh, in regards to what I'm about to be talking about, um, the film that I'm going to be talking about here today is actually a documentary. Uh, we have done documentaries here on Catching Up on Cinema before, uh, most notably uh, American Movie and uh, Overnight, the Troy Duffy documentary, uh, both of which are fantastic films. Definitely check them out if you're into the world of film and people with questionable personalities, <laughs> um, compelling individuals with questionable personalities, mind you, um, and also uh, Kung Fu Elliot. Uh, as I think we also did the the making of Jaws, or I think it's called the uh, the shark is still working, uh, which was kind of a like a fluffy piece, like it wasn't like a serious documentary. But if you love Jaws like I do, there's 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 some joy to be had in watching that. Not a whole lot to be learned from it, but just a lot of it's a joyful experience. Anyway, I'm going to be talking about uh, something that is probably much more appropriate for me to do a solo episode on than a conversation with uh, Kyle and I. Um, Hitman Heart, colon, Wrestling with Shadows, uh, from the year 1998, and this is directed by Paul J. Um, and essentially what this is, is what the title says. Um, it, it is a documentary about Brett the Hitman Hart, uh, a staple of the, at the time, uh, World Wrestling Federation, the WWF, now WWE, um, and uh, kind of like a childhood hero of sorts. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, um, my relationship with wrestling didn't begin in earnest until uh, around, uh, funny enough, around the time that this documentary was shot and takes place in. Uh, that would be roughly 1998, uh, 97, 98, around there for me personally. Um, but of course I was exposed to, to wrestling prior to that. It wasn't something that was regularly watched in my household, uh, up until about 1998, at which point we converted into like a full blown, like 
weekly appointment uh, television uh, household uh, for both WWF and WCW, we were participants, all four of my family members, uh, in the Monday Night War, uh, the famous uh, Monday Night War. Uh, but prior to that, of course, you know, I, I recognized some of the characters. Like, I, I, I think we had, like, an Ultimate Warrior Halloween costume or something with the arm tassels and the face paint. Uh, I think it was just, like, a, a vinyl something or other. You just, you, you, like, you lick it and you stick it to your face or something. I'm pretty sure some of my friends had those um, those stuffed dolls that you could beat up. And I don't remember if they made noise. If they did, the battery in that one was was out um but yeah I, I remember those being around at like friends houses maybe my brother had one too i can't remember and of course you know hulk hogan was a household name doesn't really matter who you are or where you're from everybody recognizes hulk hogan I, I was never like a huge hogan fan ever um but you you know when you're a little kid and he was larger than life of course you you kind of latch onto him a little bit but uh I probably should have said this up front. I'm doing this in reverse. Sorry. But um, if you're not aware, dear listener, um, obviously I have uh, a history with and an appreciation for um, what I guess what you'd call professional wrestling. Um, to me, it, it is it is an art form. Um, it's, it's a form of live theater that involves uh, a lot of physicality, but it, it involves cutting promos. So that would be like being an orator, like delivering speeches on a microphone in front of very, very large crowds in some cases, like on, on the grand stage. Um, and then, you know, the athleticism is there. To me, wrestling is very, very, very fascinating. Um, I have appreciated it in so many different ways uh, over the three and a half decades of my life. Um, I Like, for instance, like when I was a kid, I was really into like hardcore matches just because of the the craziness and uh, like kind of like trash wrestling wrestling kind of stuff. Or it's like, oh my god, he's hitting him with a chair. Oh my god, he put a trash can on him, then he hit him with a chair, and then he fell through a burning table. Like I was into that when I was kind of when I was like twelve or thirteen or something. That was kind of what I would do uh, whenever I had a wrestling game to play, like a video game, like on the PlayStation or the Nintendo sixty four or something. Um, and then these days, I'm I'm really into it for the the in ring storytelling. I'm I'm in it for uh, exactly the kind of things that, funny enough, the the subject of this documentary, Bret Hart, um, was famous for promoting and being virtually peerless um, in in terms of craft. Um, the the in ring storytelling is something that that's what draws me in now. I like. I like seeing a, a narrative get crafted on the fly. And um, these days with the proliferation of YouTube channels like, like Botchamania and stuff, like the, I don't know, some of the walls of kayfabe and stuff are, are starting to crash down and be replaced by other stranger walls. <laughs> um, I can't quite explain it. I don't have enough time to get into it. I'm sorry if this is really rambly and unapproachable. Um, I'll do my best to spell things out as I go along for people that maybe don't have the same insight that I do. But yeah, uh, just to summarize what this documentary actually is, um, this documentary has a centerpiece and a finale. Like basically it, it's based around a singular moment in time, like a specific event. And if you know anything about like 90s wrestling history you already know what i'm alluding to here if not then uh i guess i'll be the person to maybe explain to you uh, this fascinating bit of 
uh, live theater and uh, treachery uh, that happened in front of a live audience and, and legitimately harmed people's like livelihoods in the process. Um, the, the, the whole documentary is built around the Montreal Screwjob, as it is called. Um, essentially what it, what it is is um, the event itself in which it occurred was a Survivor Series for sure. What year? 1997. Survivor Series 1997. It was a match between uh, just eternal rivals, <laughs> Shawn, Shawn Michaels and Bret Hart. Funny enough, uh, complete opposites. They're essentially the Ken and Ryu, uh, if you get the Street Fighter reference, of wrestling of that of that era, where Bret is very much the Ryu. He's very much the... I mean, for one, he has the dark hair, but on top of that, he's also kind of vanilla in his personality. He's like, he's a straight shooter. That's his personality. <laughs> Whereas Shawn Michaels is, uh, he, he comes out doing like a David Lee Roth thing. Uh, he's known to be kind of petty and angsty in, in the locker room. Uh, all sorts of substance abuse issues, especially at that time. I, I would classify him as the Ken, where if you look at Ken's moveset in the Street Fighter games, especially as they went along, uh, they were more dynamic. They were more flashy. They emphasized speed and agility over, like, raw power. Like, Ryu wasn't so much of, like, a combo hitter. Like, like he would get you just once, but that one shot would really count. Whereas Ken, it's like, the sa- he would do the same technique, and it would have to hit you five times to have the same damage output or something. So, anyway, they're the Ken and Ryu. Uh, so, Eternal Rivals... They have a match together at Survivor Series, and um, if, if you're not aware, wrestling is staged. It, it is the, in the late 90s, it, it wasn't as generally known that, that wrestling, like whether or not wrestling was fake or not, quote, fake. Um, it was a common like subject of discussion. It was, it, there was a lot of heated debates about it. Like, like there was the, the ardent defenders of its validity of its truthfulness of of it's like no it's it's a form of live theater where people get hurt even if the outcome of the contest is predetermined the the bruises the injuries the the blood sweat and tears that goes into putting on the show is is all very very much real so it's only fake in that we were supposed to know we as in the the people putting on the show the the people playing out the drama are supposed to know where it's supposed to end or how it's supposed to end. Sometimes it doesn't go according to plan, but basically they'll, it'll be discussed ahead of time who is supposed to win the match. Everything that transpires in between the ropes a lot of times is, is called on the fly. They, they choreograph to an extent, especially if you're Randy Savage and you're obsessive about the minutia of, of choreographing a match or something along those lines. But a lot of it is live called where it's like, you know, we only have so much time before we have to go out there. We can't possibly just memorize the whole thing, especially with all the energy and the aggression that's being thrown around. So a lot of it ends up being called on the fly. But anyway, at Survivor Series, Brett was, he was told that the ending was going to be a schmoz, as in uh, it was going to be like a no contest. Some people were going to run down the ramp to like start some shit and Nobody would win, nobody would lose. It would just be a, a big clusterfuck at the end of the match. That did not happen. Instead, uh, the owner of the company, Vince McMahon, 
I demanded that the bell be rung while Bret Hart was in a submission hold, his own submission hold, by the way, that Shawn Michaels uh, borrowed from him and, uh, rep- or quote, stole from him. Uh, and uh, I seem to remember, it's not in this documentary, but I seem to remember an interview wherein Bret Hart actually said that he, when the when the sharpshooter was being applied to him, his own move was being done to him by someone other than himself, um, he actually had to verbally instruct Shawn Michaels in, into how to execute it. Like apparently, like he he slipped up the the positioning of his ankles or something. He was like, hey, you, "You gotta put my leg there, brother." <laughs> like, he was like, "Hey, you gotta do that." <laughs> in his in his very Bret Hart fashion, so he helped himself. He like assisted the person who was ultimately going to screw him over in the in the screwing. Um, but yeah, Brett was not aware that, that any of that was happening. The reason why it's called the Montreal Screwjob, just to to sum it up is that it was it was literally a conspiracy like like conspiracies are not always true but this actually was um, one thing was told to brett before going out that night that one result was told to him that it would be a schmoz ending it would be a dq or something he wouldn't end up losing and the main reason he didn't want to lose was because the the, the match was actually held in in his you know home, home country of canada and he was uh, not he was not down with losing in that fashion in front of his his essentially his home crowd um so he negotiated to not have that be the case uh unbeknownst to him though uh, vince mcmahon determined that no, it, it would be better for the brand. It would be better for the WWF if Sean if Sean got the belt, Sean won the match, um, and he actually recruited other players uh, into helping him achieve this goal. Uh, chief among which being Earl Hebner, uh, the referee uh, for that match, um, whom Bret Hart uh, actually stated he he trusted going into that match. He actually trusted him to protect him from exactly what ended up transpiring. Uh, so Earl Hebner was the one who was given the command to signal for the bell to be rung, and then ultimately the bell was rung, thus ending the match prematurely because Bret never tapped or cried out that he submitted. Um, on top of that, uh, it would not be until many, many years later, uh, material that isn't present in this documentary because this this documentary came out um, barely a year after this this event actually happened. So this conspiracy, like the the curtain, didn't actually get fully pulled all the way back until maybe decades later. Honestly, um, Shawn Michaels was involved. Um, he is shown in this documentary stating that his hands were clean, that he was not aware that the bell was going to be rung. Um, that he was not aware that Brett was going to be, quote, screwed. Um, but in later years, and more recently, Shawn Michaels has copped to being involved in the conspiracy. He he did know that that was going to happen. He just played innocent. And it is worth noting that, like, Shawn Michaels was in a very, very troubled individual at that point in his career. Um, so very slimy move on his part, um, but it's just kind of like more shit on on his epic stack of fuck-ups at that point in his life honestly um and also i don't think i don't know if it's actually been confirmed from his own lips um but i have heard in more recent years that uh triple h uh, hunter hearst helmsley uh he 
all, or Paul Levesque, excuse me, um, he also uh, was involved. Um, apparently, the story goes, and again, I don't know if he's ever done what Shawn Michaels has done and actually said this publicly, but it has been stated um, by other folks, like people who have talked about this, that uh, Triple H was in the room with Shawn Michaels. The two of them are long fr- longtime friends. Uh, he was in the room when the conversation was had with Shawn Michaels, when he was being informed of what was going to be happening that night. And apparently he he rallied for it like like he was in agreement. he was like yeah yeah that's a great that's a good idea like we should totally we should totally do that i'm the game uh, although he wouldn't be the game for a couple more years uh but yeah the there are rumors suggesting that he also was involved and really the only reason why i'm pointing that out is because uh there is a protracted sequence in this documentary towards the end of it where, like in the immediate fallout like we're talking minutes or hours uh, after the event um wherein bret hart's wife uh, actually chastises triple h like like points a finger right in his face and for a while just tells him how much of a shit human being he is and he should have known better and uh, something bad's gonna happen to him basically like god like literally god is going to kick your door down and set your couch on fire or something um so she rips into him and he just bows his head and i think he says a couple of times that he i have nothing to say to you um and so i i again i i am not actually positive if he was involved in this like if he actually had foreknowledge of this but i think that that's probably true i have to i have to assume that that's probably true because he and he and sean were very 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 close uh, at that time um anyway that's actually a fairly small part of the documentary it kind of serves as like the final act of it but the whole thing is built on that foundation like we have narration from bret hart all the way through the movie um kind of speak like you can tell that it was recorded after the screw job um and as such as a documentarian paul j our director did a very good job of like finding a narrative structure uh for lay- for laying out the to- the story that he's trying to tell because a good portion of the story is just bret hart on the road living the life of a wrestler like at the top of his game uh which to me anyway uh, is very very fascinating we also get quite a lot of time dedicated to um, the history and the legacy of the hart family the the incredibly famous uh, hart family in the world of professional wrestling um we got like a family dinner where we're introduced to all of brett's uh, brothers and sisters he has a lot i think there's like eight of them uh and i think his dad came from like a family of there may be 12 of them or something like there are a fuck ton of hearts. And apparently, uh, apparently literally all of them, uh, have ties to the wrestling business in some fashion, like all of Stu Hart, all of the patriarch of the family, all of his sons took up wrestling, uh, became professional wrestlers to, to some degree or another. And all of his daughters married professional wrestlers. Um, uh, that's that is incredible i don't know exactly how that happens um but yeah quite a lot of the movie is quite a lot of the documentary is uh dedicated simply to that and that was also quite fascinating um in all like like to like just to say this up front um this is a very good documentary uh it's 
kind of interesting because like you could tell that there was something in the air not just in terms of like cultural relevance but also in, in terms of like how how the winds were changing in terms of how wrestling is regarded in the public eye uh, because things like kayfabe uh, like they they would remain very 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 solid until like the social media age essentially uh but around around the time like the the attitude era the the product was changing very very quickly very very radically um and the the timing of this documentary is fascinating to me because it also virtually parallels uh, the release of uh, a beyond the mat um, which is also a wrestling documentary that also uh, largely puts its focus on the world of the WWF, but also uh, the indies. Uh, that's a very, very candid look into the world of what it means to be a professional wrestler in, again, in that era, in the late 90s. Um, some really compelling human drama in that, in particular, the Jake the Snake Roberts portions of it uh, are some of the most depressing shit you'll ever see. However, uh, in retrospect, it's kind of, it has a, I don't know, a, a sunny aspect to it in that Jake the Snake is doing a lot better than he was at that time. Uh, so that, that is incredible. I never would have expected that, honestly. Would have expected him to, I think in his own words, be dead somewhere in a gutter of five minutes after they shot that documentary. But no, he's, he's doing well. Uh, I don't know uh, to what extent he's still a part of AEW, but uh, yeah, they brought him back there and he, he was looking good. That DDP yoga, man, saves lives. Like, legit. Um, and also the Terry Funk portions of that were really interesting. Uh, Beyond the Mat is a fantastic documentary. I would do an episode on that any day. Um, I don't need an excuse to rewatch that one. Uh, I think that came out in 99. This one, uh, the one that I'm talking about here, but Bret Hart, is from 98. Uh, so very closely tied in, in some ways. Um but yeah, uh, some of the, the stuff with the Bret Hart family, with, with the Stu Hart family, um, was really, like, it's it's interesting because the, the Hart family is so goddamn stoic. Like, virtually each and every one of them has a particular way of speaking where it, it's kind of hard to understand, like, the how much weight they're putting into certain things that they say. Cause there's, they're very matter of fact and they're very stoic about so many things, but there's a lot of like really heavy and profound things that like these, just these nuggets of information that they just kind of drop, but their affect is so flat and that you, it leaves you questioning, like, do they know, do they know like the implications of what they're saying? Cause I honestly can't tell. Cause like, in watching this now, like if through the lens of somebody in 2023, Stu Hart is apparently a sadist. Uh, he's apparently a like a absolutely inhuman savage, <laughs> um, because it's it's strongly implied that uh, I mean the Hart Dungeon is is their uh, their basement where they would do wrestling training, and apparently he would go out to the gym and just invite young dudes uh, to go do submission to do shoot matches basically like actual submission wrestling like not stage professional wrestling like actual like i twist your arm in the wrong direction kind of submission wrestling in his own basement and apparently this routinely resulted in people uh screaming crying out in pain uh said cries could be heard throughout the entire house 
And it is strongly implied that he, not only would he do this with strange men from the gym in town, he would also do this to his kids, each and every one of them, uh, including Owen, who I believe was the youngest. And we'll, we'll get to Owen in, in a minute, I guess. But yeah, it is strongly implied. It's never like, I don't think they go into much detail about it, but like it sounds like in in gaining entry to the family business, because Stu Hart did actually have his own wrestling organization, Stampede Wrestling in Canada, um, in being assimilated into that business and becoming a performer in, in Stampede Wrestling, it's strongly implied that like the, the training program was you go in the basement and get your ass whooped by dad on the regular, and you, you get good or you don't, um, and if you don't, you get hurt more. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know if that's, that's where the kind of their, their flattened affect comes out <laughs> where, where like they, I don't know, they've been so incredibly physically humbled, uh, for so long, so early in their life that there's like some serious deep seated trauma or something. But, uh, yeah, Stu is not, he doesn't look good in this. <laughs> like, like I always knew he was, I always knew he was a very, very tough guy. Like, like that was always the reputation of the dungeon, the, the heart dungeon is again, his basement training facility was that if you, if you survived the dungeon and survived, I guess is the right word here. Um, a lot of the people that came out of that were exceptional performers and it probably because I, I guess what iron sharpens iron is the concept we're playing at here. Um, but yeah, within, within the confines of this documentary, like he he comes across as a complete monster and he also speaks in the same fashion as his sons um but there are sequences in this where he is literally torturing people <laughs> who you know honestly are volunteering themselves to be tortured but you can tell that there's like a little bit of sadistic joy that comes in not only applying said said pain and punishment to people but kind of like making making a science out of it like he seems to get off on telling them how he's hurting them and how he can how he can hurt them more <laughs> it's really fucked up but it's presented in a very flat just matter of fact way where it's like yeah we went down the basement with a camera crew we didn't ask any questions we just shot and that's what happened i guess this is i guess this is this is the equivalent of like the grandkids wrestling with grandpa or something after thanksgiving dinner it's like you, know, you want to go down the basement and wrestle with grandpa you sure about that kiddo <laughs> um but yeah Stu Stu seems really fucked up um anyway uh we also get to see of course uh, davy boy smith uh, the british bulldog at at the same family dinner and of course owen hart a couple of other uh of brett's brothers um also did a couple of uh, appearances in the wwf uh, around this time i don't remember their names but i do remember seeing them in uh i think it was was it was it another survivor series or king of the ring where it was Shawn michaels and his knights which i remember i always remember that being weird because Shawn michaels was a weird late replacement and he had these knights they were all guys in like masks and stuff they were just like putty patrol guys or something i'm sure they were all distinguished performers who would go on to have great careers but at the time they were just like random like card suit guys with masks and it was just based on the aesthetics it was so obvious that it was supposed to be jerry the king lawler because i think he was feuding with bret hart at the time 
but they swapped in Shawn Michaels, and I think that may have been, and I'm talking directly out of my ass, the timing, I think, was because Jerry the King Lawler had issues with, uh, with a young woman. Uh, yeah, I think he was in trouble with the law involving a young woman, if memory serves. And I wouldn't be surprised if that, if the timing of that coincided with that. And they're like, hey, maybe we should take the king off the TV until the dust clears on that, you know, potential trial or whatever. Could be wrong on the timing of that, but I just always thought that was weird that Shawn Michaels has these night guys. Since when the fuck does Shawn Michaels hang out with knights? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I seem to remember uh, Brett. Uh, having some of his other brothers, the ones that were not regularly part of the WWF, uh, be part of his like four or five men uh, tag team, uh, which was cute. Uh, the Hart family, like the whole the whole damn clan, uh, routinely got brought on uh, WWF programming around this time. Uh, family affair, man. Um, but yeah, it, over the course of the documentary, we get to see all sorts of neat backstage stuff. Like, there's so there's so much like fan service kind of stuff in this, where it's not it's not shot as fan service, but again, looking at this as like a time capsule is really really cool if you're a, if you're a fan of this particular era of the product, where it's like you get to see like Goldust and Savio Vega, I, the the fucking Godwin Godwins or whatever farting around backstage. Um, Sunny, uh, <laughs> who is very much in jail at this point, I believe. I think she went to prison very recently. Uh, never give that woman her keys back. Uh, Tammy Sitch, I believe is her name. Uh, yeah, uh, Sunny is in a lot of this, although they never cover the Sunny Days promo, um, which I'm kind of surprised at because I know that that's not included in this documentary, but I do know from other documentaries um, that Brett did uh, have some issues with that storyline uh, where, where Sean accused him of having an affair with Sonny, uh, the, the famous valet from that era of, of WWF programming. I, I do remember he like actually took umbrage with, with having to carry out that storyline. He was like, that was a, that was a little bro, man. Um, but yeah, uh, there's so many like blinking you'll miss it just like appearances from various performers of the era. We get to see some footage of Brett going at it with Undertaker uh, and uh, Vader. We get to, we get to see him drop a fucking superplex on on Vader. That is impressive uh, for both people. Like that requires a lot of trust and coordination for sure. That's a big guy. Uh, yeah, Leon's a big guy. Um, and also like I I got a good chuckle out of seeing. Uh, Vince Russo uh, wandering the halls backstage uh, or I think he was standing in on a, a like a, a story session of some sort which makes sense being as he was a writer but if you're not aware Vince Russo was a infamous uh, writer of wrestling storylines who um, for a while was actually theorized uh, that he was a, a, a double agent um, who jumped ship from WWF to WCW and was embedded in WCW to sabotage their product because his the quality of his writing, while consistent, if you if you ask me, was quite like largely diminished um, be, during that transition period. Like like his his work at WCW was nobody's finest hour. <laughs> Um, but seeing him here, like in the halls at the arena, it was really, really funny because at WCW, he was always wearing like 
what what was it uh baltimore uh sports jerseys and stuff or t-shirts like he 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 looked like he should be standing next to kevin smith or something like he was always very casual in his attire uh, very loud on the mic and stuff very boisterous and, and and like aggressive and stuff but here we see him in 1997 and he's got glasses, and he's wearing a fucking blazer. He looks like a corporate suit. And his, even his demeanor, he's, like, really meek and quiet, and he's just kind of letting the boys, the, the wrestlers in the room, do all the talking and stuff. It was really interesting just seeing. It's like, wow, a couple years and, you know, presumably a smaller paycheck makes uh, quite a big difference in, in how somebody's personality works out. Um, we also get to see the, uh, the Hart Foundation, uh, we we get to see quite a lot of their match footage, um, and like their ring walks and stuff. We get some footage from one of the in your in uh, in your house uh, pay per view shows. Uh, I believe it was the Canadian Stampede, uh, which of course would kind of like paying tribute to the to Stu Hart's uh, Stampede Wrestling, which was absorbed by Vince McMahon at one point. So it's like kind of paying homage to that which came before in the territory in which it emerged from. Um, and the Hart Foundation was basically like a stable uh, of it was like four or five players. Uh, I'll just try to rattle them off real quick. It's, Brett was, you know, the de facto leader because he was he was the face. He was the the most popular Hart. Um, his younger his younger brother Owen was there as well. Uh, very 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 talented performer, but unfortunately never reached the same heights of popularity. Um, as Brett for, for a variety of reasons. Um, I also mentioned uh, Davy Boy Smith was at the family dinner. He was also part of the Hart Foundation uh, in that he married into the family, even though he's British. Um, Jim the Anvil Neidhart uh, was also there. Uh, he, he brought his fucking dime bag with him, I'm, I'm guessing. A lot of substance abuse problems there. Um, and uh, Brian Pillman, flying, flying Brian Pillman. I forget what his uh, his nickname at the time was when he was kind of doing the Kurt Cobain thing, uh, in terms of the way he was his uh, his aesthetic was. Um, but he, his whole thing was that he was he was nuts. He was unhinged. Um, also, like this this kind of like made me shake my head in disgust. Um, as I was watching the documentary, it occurred to me, oh. Fuck! I think literally every member of this iteration of the Heart Foundation is has passed away. Like uh, Owen tragically fell to his death at a WWF show um, only a couple years or a year, I think. No, maybe two years after this. Um, Davy Boy had constant substance abuse issues um, that were exacerbated by a lower back injury uh, and infect and subsequent infection. Um, I believe he passed away. Jim Neidhart, basically the same deal minus the back injury, although you know every wrestler has injuries. Uh, Brian Pillman's same deal. They're, they have all passed away, so it's literally just Brett now of that of that group. Um, and you know Brett's suffered a stroke, um, but he's since recovered as far as i can tell but like gee it, it was chilling because these guys aren't that old like they're not that old like they're 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 up there in years especially in, in athletic terms but they're not like my dad's age or something and they're all gone it's really fucked up um 
so the the Montreal Screwjob, though, as I said, serves as kind of the the main event, for lack of a better term, of the whole documentary. We are kind of building up to it, and the way that they the way that they cover it is very earnest and and like not overly overly dramatic. Like there 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 are instances in documentaries where they they push too hard to create like a, a clean narrative with with you know, morals or some sort of tidy, like tidy wrapping up of the story. Um, but in this one, the, the way it's presented feels very honest and is not overly dramatic. I mean, it's hard to make things overly dramatic when everybody who's speaking into the camera talks like Bret Hart. <laughs> it's like, yeah, they screwed me over in, in Canada. I feel kind of bad about it. I'm bad about it. Yeah, they screwed me really bad. Not too happy about it. Are we done? <laughs> like, like that's mostly his delivery throughout the whole thing. But it does, like, it doesn't downplay the drama though, because we as the viewer can make our own guesses as to how much weight things carry. Like, we get to see tough things, like Bret Hart talking about money and and talking about not being around for his family with his wife. That that was actually one of the more impactful things in in this viewing. Like. Full disclosure, I have seen this documentary once before, several years ago. Um, I decided to rewatch it because I picked up the Blu-ray version of it. Um, and funny enough, I did discover it has a bonus feature in the form of a, a, a like a mini documentary, like a 45-minute documentary that was released, uh, was directed and released by the same director, Paul Jay, uh, 10 years after, um, that was called The Life and Death of Owen Hart. Uh, so it's it's a beautiful companion piece to this. I would say it's its equal, even though the run times are very different. Um, I'll talk about that in a second, but um, yeah, the, the sequence wherein we get to spend like a little bit of time with Bret Hart's wife um, was very impactful this time around. Cause like she's asked like point blank, like, so like, how do you feel about Bret continuing to wrestle? And he, I think he just turned 40 at the time of, uh, at the time they were making the documentary and this woman has been clearly raising like three kids uh, largely by herself and it kind of like i hate to be mean about it, but it kind of shows like like this woman looks like she's 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 had it rough for a while now and there's just this long pause and she just looks straight into the camera and she's like oh yeah i'm I have been done for so long. <laughs> it's like, like she's been waiting for like 20, she's been waiting him for him to quit for like 25 years or something. And you can tell that she has been done. They have probably yelled at each other about this quite a lot. Um, but the man's life is wrestling. And unfortunately he, he happens to be as, as he say, as he says, you know, the, the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be. And, I'm kind of of the opinion that that is somewhat true. Like he he and Sean are are two of my favorite wrestlers. I will concede that guys at AEW like Kenny Omega and Will Ospreay and stuff like of course on athletic level they are superior. They can do things that neither Brett nor Sean ever dreamed of attempting to do, um, nor in, nor took the time to innovate. Um, but in terms of just like ring IQ and understanding the, the how to pace out a match and the psychology aspect of it the ring psychology um brett and sean man they're, they're two of my very very favorites of all time and a lot of people agree with that um 
But yeah, li- listening to his wife and some of the conversations he has with her, you can tell it's it's been hard. Because remember, especially especially at this point in time and at this point in history when this documentary is being shot, the, these wrestlers for these major organizations or any organizations really – their life is on the road like like it's the modern day circus like they are they are nomadic as all hell like they're on the road like 50 weeks out of the year if not more (laughs) um so to try to be a family man and one of the best wrestlers of your time is just not possible as far as i can tell like like you can tell that like like he he tries his best but part of do, try part of really doing your best is fucking being there and it's clear that he simply can't be if if he's going to be Brett the Hitman Hart uh, so that stuff was interesting as was the uh funny enough like the the contract negotiations and the money discussions things that would be dreadfully boring to a child but as an adult now who actually has to worry about paying bills and stuff I found that fascinating because I didn't mention this I was kind of holding back on it um, until I felt the need to get into it. But this does take place in the midst of the mid of the Monday night war. Essentially, this was, this was the impetus for the Montreal screwdrop. Essentially was that Bret Hart at the beginning of the documentary is disclosed that he has been courted by WCW. He has been proposed. I think it's like a nine year contract for like $30 million or something. And at the time, especially, that was incredible. And of course, he was considering taking it. But then he does he does some of that Bret Bret Hart shit, where like point blank to the camera, like he very candidly says, like, "Yo, uh, loyalty is important." Yeah, I think I started I started here. I think I'm gonna stay here, cause you know loyalty is important. Uh, so he he decides, like you know. The way he the way he kind of like convinces himself is that like the WWF was aside from my my father's organization was largely where I've spent my entire career. The WWF also absorbed my father's organization, so like everything that I am as a wrestler basically has been here. And at this point in time, even though somebody's offering me thirty million dollars to jump ship. It feel it makes me feel like a heel. It makes me feel crummy, and I use that word very specifically, heel, because Brett kind of prides himself on largely being a face. I, I thought he was actually a pretty good heel, uh, and I'll I'll get into that in just a second after I finish this thought. But he basically determines that's like you know, the company that I I work for currently is the one that I feel loyalty to in the midst of this conflict. Like, like if they truly are in pitched battle with WCW and in danger of potentially going under as a result of it, I feel a sense of loyalty to defending the organization that basically gave me my livelihood. Uh, that technically, it, like, still somewhere deep within its bowels, like, houses the skeleton of my, my father's previous venture. <laughs> Um, so he just he determines that he's going to stick around, um, and instead he takes a twenty-year contract from Vince McMahon. I don't know the monetary value of the, that twenty-year contract, but he takes that, and it is mentioned that the money 
from that 20-year contract with WWF was significantly less. So he took a pay cut, uh, potentially financial security for 20 years, but he took a pay cut to stay where he was. And that's at the beginning of the documentary. By the time we get to the screw job, uh, he's at the point where he, he is unhappy with the creative direction of WWF. He is actually bitten the hand that feeds him in the form of doing television interviews with, with like talk radio and sports sports journalists about how he finds the current age of wrestling programming to be unsavory and overly sexualized and it's very very fascinating to hear him say that because you can tell that it that is his actual opinion but unfortunately he's kind of the 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 product is moving beyond him the audience doesn't want what he's offering anymore and that has to be an unbelievably difficult pill to swallow when again you're you're the excellence of execution you're one of the best people to ever do it you mean to tell me people don't want to see me do it anymore it's like i don't think that's the case i, th I think anybody like regardless of the particular flavor of pro wrestling that they like i think any any person who appreciates wrestling can appreciate what bret hart did does and and did but you can tell that just based on the the overall presentation of the product as a whole uh it was moving past him like it was moving beyond him it was it was reaching into territory that he was just not comfortable with like he was again asked to do storylines where he was potentially like having affairs with with valet like female valets in in the wrestling organization there was a lot of <laughs> there was a constant parade of, of strippers on the program very shortly after he left um after the screw job in the form of characters like the godfather and uh Jeff Jarrett's valet slash Stone Cold Steve Austin's wife Deborah just coming out and all pushed up and f just falling out of whatever. <laughs> um, it, clearly, he was uncomfortable with the product um, in the late '90s, such that he determined, you know what? I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna go for the money now because I'm not, I'm not happy doing what I'm doing anymore. Uh, so I may as well take the money and try to support my family. Uh, so he. He determines that he's going to jump ship to WCW finally after a few years of toiling, I guess. Um, but uh, that's that's kind of what serves as the impetus for the for the screw job, is that his contract is is too large, and Vince wants him out, uh, and also Vince wants to kind of thumb his nose at the other team, uh, where Brett will ultimately end up landing. And a big part of it is he simply can't afford to keep paying Brett. Like he want, because because Brett has so much seniority and and does draw crowds and stuff. I have to imagine like his salary was perhaps uh, overinflated uh, for the current state of the company. Um, but yeah, all that with the the contract negotiation stuff was fascinating to me. Um, and then the the presentation of the screw job is excellent. Like it's it's not overplayed. Uh, we get to see a lot of the true human emotions that come out of it, um, and they really, they really captured some some gold uh, with with the backstage cameras. Like famously, uh, post like immediately uh, after the screw job, uh, famously uh, Bret Hart actually confronted Vince McMahon in his office at the arena, and we do not see it. 
but we do see the aftermath of it and it's never been refuted. Uh, that's the most important part. Uh, we do see, we, the story goes that Brett, uh, punched Vince McMahon, um, knocked him out in one punch is, is the story. And no, again, nobody, including Vince McMahon has ever refuted that. Um, but we do get, we do get to see Vince McMahon being escorted down a hallway on rubbery, rubbery legs. Um, and I believe it was, it was shortly after, uh, that incident wherein, um, we, we, had a television interview. I forget what network it was broadcast on, but it, the interview footage is included in the beginning of uh, of this documentary. It's a chilling, uh, chilling interview where uh, it's Vince McMahon doing like a network television interview. And it's, uh, if you want to look it up, it, just look up the phrase, Brett screwed Brett. Um, but you will note that he has a, a little bit of a mouse uh, that is like, like a, a swelling or a bruising under his eye. Uh, as he's as he's conducting this interview um and i have to assume uh, that was the point of impact uh of brett's right hand apparently <laughs> uh, just based on the location of that bruise so he caught him right in the sinus cavity uh not quite the chin uh, but apparently it was enough to lay lay the old man out um had it coming uh, and then some vince is a vince is a piece of shit he's not a good person uh but yeah, a very good documentary. I will say that uh, this was my second time watching it, uh, and this also was my first time watching the aforementioned "The Life and Death of Owen Hart" uh, documentary. As I said, it's it's about forty five minutes long, um, but I would say it is on par with the main event, like with the main documentary, and in terms of its its overall quality. And uh, it is so goddamn sad, though. Like it's, it's not like, it's not going to make you like ball with tears or anything. Like it's not that kind of sad, but it's just like, if you really think of if you really pull the lens back and you really think about all the things that happened to that family, to the heart, the whole heart clan, um, over, over like a few year stretch of time, it's tragic. Like it's really tragic, especially because this, the, the Owen Hart documentary opens with something I actually didn't know. Um, remember this was my first time watching that one. Um, like he straight up says he didn't want to be a wrestler. <laughs> like I had no idea about that because he was so goddamn good at it. Like maybe it's genetic or maybe it's because of his quote training in, in Stu's basement. But Owen Hart was a brilliant wrestler. Uh, he never got the same push as Brett, um, partially because one, he was the younger brother and Brett already kind of had the spotlight. So he was always going to be somewhat in his shadow, but they do actually talk about it. They don't, they don't attribute it to his, uh, to his position in the company kind of floundering, but they do actually include the incident that a lot of people theorize was largely responsible for him not not ever really rising to to his full prominence i guess like so uh i think it was SummerSlam. i'm not positive but um it was the point is it was a match between owen hart and stone cold steve austin who if you know anything about wrestling you, you probably know who that is he's a bald guy uh, he got set on fire in that first expendables movie he made a movie called hunt to kill and he has a podcast that you may or may not have listened to um Anyway, uh, he was in a match with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, when Stone Cold was kind of 
kind of starting to cook like he he wasn't fully what he is what he would become but he was really starting to gain ground as like a popular performer um and it was it was a, a another tragedy uh that really like either was one of the best things to happen to stone cold uh or tragically like one of the very worst things to happen to stone cold and i say that because uh, he suffered an injury during the match and as a result of said injury he had to not only alter his his wrestling style because his athleticism would become diminished but he would also be forced to largely become a personality driven character rather than an in-ring performer so instead of doing like epic iron man matches or something like like one hour contests every night or some shit realistically as as popular as he was the only way that they could conceivably trot him out from week to week and give the give the crowds what they want i.e stone cold steve austin at the show live live and big as life and twice as ugly the only way that he could conceivably do that from week to week after being injured was to be like a an orator was was to be a talker um which i think is probably largely responsible for him becoming as popular as he did was his antics and and his his buzzwords and his his catchphrases and his ability to express himself on the mic rather than in the ring. I mean, he still wrestled for fuck for fuck's sake. Yes, he wrestled, but it was kind of a, a forced handicap on the way he had to perform that may have actually nudged him in the right direction in terms of gaining ground and, and popularity. It's just a theory. Um, anyway, uh, he and Owen Hart had had a match, and it was. I've seen it uh, front to back. I've seen the whole match, not just the the incident, but um, it was a great match. Like really, really fundamental technical stuff. Really, really crisp though. Like the two of them, especially Stone Cold at that time, like he could fucking go. And Owen, of course, can fucking go. So the two of them had a brilliant match, but unfortunately at some point, presumably towards the end of it, because they did go a few minutes, like it, like it, it was a full match up to that point. Um, Stone Cold gets put in a pile driver position, and you can tell just by watching the setup to it that he's wiggling a little bit too much, and he has his arms cinched around Owen's torso, uh, but he is too low. Like, in theory, the person dropping the other person on their head in the pile driver position, their, their thighs, their ass, should be taking the brunt of the impact, but instead... Stone Cold, the top of Stone Cold's head, like a good top, like the top half of his skull uh, is poking out from between Owen Hart's thighs and his, the top of the man's skull was driven directly into the mat. Um, I don't know if he actually broke his neck, but he most certainly was concussed and something was impinged, like, like his spine was severely injured in that moment. Uh, Like I said, I don't know if it was a legit, it was an actual neck break. Um, but definitely his spine was rearranged in some fashion. And then the, the conclusion of that match is truly sad to watch where you can see Owen just like pacing around and trying to do the pantomime of like, yeah, I'm the bad guy in this match, right? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to pose a whole bunch and make it look like, like, like I'm, I don't know, boasting about how badly I just hurt this man. When in reality you can see it's like, no, he is panicked. Like he is so crestfallen that he, he knows, he knows he hurt him. Like he knows he hurt somebody he wasn't supposed to hurt, but he, 
he's so married to preserving the sanctity of kayfabe and of the maintaining the illusion of pro wrestling because again it was not generally known or accepted that wrestling was fake at that point in time and uh it ends with with like a schoolboy roll-up pin but stone stone cold just kind of like flops around like a dead like a dying fish and he just like eases owen onto his back and he actually like to his credit like this is just a sign of superhuman toughness and again commitment to the bit like stubbornly refusing to betray the business betray the sanctity of the illusion of wrestling like stone cold actually completed the match like he won a match with a broken fucking neck and given it like it's not like it was a struggle but he still had to crawl over to owen and ease him over onto his back and lay on him for a few seconds so the ref could count to three and then you see him backstage he was walking under his own power somehow just ungodly tough individual um pretty much any pro wrestler honestly like if like not trying to say that any any one of these people was tougher than the other like any any pro wrestler is different breed honestly (laughs) um but yeah uh, if if (laughs) if that was too much uh, just to sum up Owen Hart injured Stone Cold Steve Austin at a point when he was basically the most popular wrestler for that company. So it stands to reason that the higher ups, while not willing to fire Owen Hart because the Hart name does carry some cachet and, you know, Owen is, he, he was, uh, excuse me, uh, a brilliant performer that could have a good match with basically anybody. Like they did not release him, but they also did not promote him they just kind of like kept him around and saddled him with lots of shitty gimmicks i think at one point he was the black heart or something where he he's normally kind of blonde but uh like they dyed his hair black and gave him like a goatee or something at one point he was set he was like working with the nation of domination which if you're not aware is basically all african-american players and a white canadian um and then, uh, unfortunately, like uh, when he did tragically meet his end, when he when he died in an accident, uh, he was acting as the Blue Blazer character, uh, which apparently was his first gig in WWF, serving as a jobber in like luchador gear, the Blue Blazer, um, who was utterly ridiculous and was just there to lay down. But you know, it's. It, it's your first gig of course it's going to be humiliating it's the equivalent of like i don't know like working at like a, a sub sub level mcdonald's fast food organization or something um so it, he was saddled once again with being the blue blazer and then uh the documentary goes over it in detail including the lawsuit involved but yeah uh, tragically on a pay-per-view um he was to descend from the rafters of the arena on uh, on a on a steel cable um but the 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 stopper like the the safety harness basically uh did not function correctly and instead instead of being lowered he fell in front of a packed arena and uh, i i think he i've never actually seen footage of it i don't know if it exists i don't need to see it i don't need to see owen hart die in front of the cameras but um, he fell from the rafters, and I believe he hit the turnbuckle, that is the ropes, um, and then fell into the ring, uh, at which point he was uh, 
attended to by like on-site medical staff. I think he actually was taken to a hospital before he did pass away. Um, but yeah, it happened in front of a live audience, and I'll never forget the live call. I think I was watching it scrambled. Not I didn't purchase the pay-per-view, but I do remember hearing the audio of it. Of uh, I think it was Jr. Uh, Jim Ross, uh, who still works at uh, AEW as a commentator, albeit his <laughs> abilities to deliver said commentary uh, have diminished somewhat. We love you, Jr. But you know, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Uh, yeah anyway um I, he basically is he he is given the task of having to speak directly to camera because they cannot possibly broadcast uh any of what's transpiring in the ring at the time but basically it's him talking direct to camera and informing the the viewer uh that would be the people who had purchased the pay-per-view that uh yeah owen hart has uh, fallen and is injured. I don't remember if he reported his death uh, on the scene, um, but they did actually address it in the moment, if memory serves. Um, but yeah, there's so many like small details in the documentary that just like a- as tragic as that was, it it uh like to to have his career have some real high points and then kind of flounder, and then at his kind of his lowest point die for the most needless of reasons because it was supposed to be a joke it was supposed to be a play on at the time sting was uh in his crow get up at uh the wcw and uh he was also like hanging out in the rafters but also occasionally he would drop down from them and like intercept matches but he'd like interrupt matches and stuff with his baseball bat so he'd come down on a cable and then and his he'd be wearing his duster or whatever his trench coat and come wreck people's shit so the, the gag was that they have kind of like a superhero-themed get-up for Owen Hart in the form of the Blue Blazer outfit, and he he would make he would imitate and make fun of Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, and Sting, all of whom were kind of senior-ish performers at WCW. Uh, and mind you, WWF was in, in the middle of kind of like a youth movement at the time. Um, so yeah, it was all for the purpose of a really lame joke, and it was so needless and tragic, but... The documentary like serves to illuminate certain details that make it even even fucking sadder. Uh, like most especially, um, there's like home movie footage of Owen Hart and his wife um, holding up like architectural sketches um, for a country home that it was their dream to have built, um, like somewhere in Canada, I presume, or I can't remember exactly where. I assumed Canada, but um, anyway. We see also via home home movie footage from the Hart family that the house was built and <laughs> he he was a week away from moving into his dream house with his wife. Like they were married with kids prior to that, but clearly like a house doesn't get built instantaneously. It takes time and clearly a lot of hard work and money goes into that project as well. They were literally like one calendar week away from actually living in their dream house. And so we get to see the truly sad sight of his his wife now having to live there, like in in this like oversized castle because like because it is a big luxurious home, but it was meant to be a family home, and now it's like her and the kids. And it's just so sad to to see that and know that like he he never even got to live there. Like he got to see it getting built. He never actually got to spend a night in his dream home. Uh, 
and then apparently like like one of the the heart nephews or something like one of the like 12 year old nephews or something died like only a couple years uh, before this so the family was already kind of rattled the the montreal screw job happened in 1997 which was i believe about two years before owen hart's passing so it's just like one thing after another and then, and then it's not in the documentary. Uh, so I'm, I'm transitioning into a wrap up here. I, I apologize if I'm running long and this is completely unintelligible to anybody listening to this, but Hey, it's an episode. Fuck off. Uh, you got your content. Um, it's not included in the documentary because again, uh, they weren't filming at the time, but Bret Hart, when he did go to WCW, as far as I recall, cause I remember I was watching, I haven't gone back to rewatch, but I was watching both programs kind of at the time, mostly WWF. I was largely invested in WWF, but Bret Hart, even though he was getting paid quite a lot, like quite handsomely at WCW, uh, the light had kind of like gone out of him. Like, like the passion wasn't there. The man could always perform physically and stuff, but just, you could tell just, he didn't bring his a game and what's more the writing that he was the writing that they like applied to his character and his storylines was really uh, uh, like just half baked, like like it, it really not top shelf kind of stuff. So he floundered at WCW, and then he hears of Owen's passing. It's like, oh wow! So I I left like they screwed me over, and then they killed my brother. Yeah, wrestling's great. I love wrestling, especially that WWF plays. Um, but then, uh, of course, in 1999, um, Brett would have his career forcibly ended um, in the form of suffering a apparently really nasty concussion uh, at the hands of Bill Goldberg. Uh, he he got a like a shuffle sidekick, basically like a f- just a full blast kick uh, to the to the temple, I believe. And you can tell that there was some sort of miscommunication or mistiming. But what's interesting is that you can tell that, like, in spite of that, Brett had enough ring awareness to, like, put his hands up. Like, he did attempt to shield himself. Like, he he wasn't completely caught off guard. But a blow that should have just been him colliding with, with the flat, like, like, with the ball of a person's foot and letting, like letting himself like sell the impact of the blow turned into somebody literally just like putting like activating their hips as my buddy Kyle would say and put on like driving the full force of of their lower body into his temple (laughs) um and yeah it resulted in a terrible concussion that literally ended his career um and then years down the road he would suffer a stroke on top of that so it's like in the span of like three years, Brett Brett gets screwed. Uh, he he goes to join the other company. Owen dies. Brett gets concussed, and his career's over. So both of the Hart brothers are out. Oh yeah, and then the entire Hart Foundation. I think Brian Pillman was already dead at this point. Jim Neidhart may have, may have been as well. I know I'm pretty sure Pillman was already gone by that point. Jim Neidhart maybe as well. Davy Boy not too far away as well. Like. A lot of tragedy uh, in in a very long stretch of time for the Hart family, but clearly I have a lot of passion uh, for wrestling. It is something that's important to me. I can't exactly explain why, um, but I do have a saying. Uh, 
everything is wrestling and uh, I don't have a succinct way of explaining it so I won't try I guess but really it's just I, I have the ability to somehow tie virtually any any subject to wrestling uh, and in many ways I feel like with the advent of social media and like just the online world in general with like online social structures and stuff I feel like more and more what should what should be a separate and distinct thing that is actual reality and the fictional reality of professional wrestling I feel like they're starting to resemble each other quite a bit more and I feel like wrestling is the one bearing more influence on the real world than the other way around <laughs> um Someday I'll have a full-ass discussion with somebody about about my little saying about everything is wrestling, but that's the best I got for now. But anyway, um, yeah, this was uh, Hitman Heart Wrestling with Shadows, uh, again from director Paul Jay, who also directed the 45-minute documentary that uh, on the Blu-ray is included, uh, The Life and Death of Owen Hart, which I think was from 1999. Uh very, very good documentaries. I'd say they're on almost on par uh, with Beyond the Mat. Beyond the Mat gets some brownie points just for how just how how raw it is, like <laughs> for lack of a better term, raw uh, they are. Uh, it is rather. Um, it it goes into some of the darker corners of of the wrestling world that don't deal with like the the top tier talent. Like it. It shows you what it means to be somebody who has nothing but passion. Uh, maybe not, maybe not as much talent as, say, a Bret Hart or a Shawn Michaels, but just like all they have is passion and guts. And it just shows you. It pulls back the curtain. It goes beyond the mat, and it shows you like the kinds of people um, that would commit to doing such a quote crazy profession in the late nineties. Very, very interesting stuff. I, I love wrestling documentaries. Um, I own many of them. Although, I, I will say that uh, we're in a kind of funky era for that particular subgenre of film uh, because both this documentary and Beyond the Mat um, were obviously produced with the permission of WWF, but the, the main distinction is that they were not commissioned by the WWF that's the distinction between these documentaries from the late 90s and the ones that would come out in subsequent years because when WWE Studios was founded um, apparently that was like a, a project that McMahon had wanted to get off the ground since he started wrestling since he started like the WWF like, like he always wanted to make movies and you can kind of see that with with how they do their vignettes and how much emphasis is placed on the the editing and of those like promos and stuff their promo department is top tier like always has been always will be um say what you will about the in-ring product or the storytelling or whatever their their promos are they get you pumped they get you hyped um but yeah when wwe studios came around the company itself started producing documentaries and as a result it's it's impossible for them to be as candid or as truthful as something like Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows, or Beyond the Mat, because they're they're they've gotten too big. They have shareholders now. They I, they weren't a public company, I don't think, in 1997 or 98. Um, 
so as a result the documentaries have good content but they're they're not willing to go as deep or as dark uh, as these these older grittier ones were which is unfortunate because wrestling in like figures in wrestling are inherently just very very fascinating and dramatic individuals um, it would be nice to have you know very honest forthright tellings of their stories but it's not really possible anymore um so it's documentaries like this that are, are kind of neat in a in a time capsule sort of way but anyway yeah this was hitman heart wrestling with shadows uh, from year 1998 directed by paul J. Uh, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other catching up on cinema content you can do so by navigating to our website of catching up on cinema.com uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Instagram at Catching Up On Cinema, as well as the Twitter slash X at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. So fucking Google it. And that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.